Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. No matter how much you choose to give, you'll feel awesome next time you tune in, knowing that we wouldn't be here without you. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Plus, we have great member swag. Show off your HRN pride with a t-shirt or keep your hands safe in the kitchen with an HRN potholder. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Thanks for listening. Your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to this episode of Speaking Broadly. Today, I am very excited to speak with someone who runs a community supported fishery, or one of a family member who does, uh, in Graveyard Point, Bristol Bay. And that would be Alaska. But before I do, there's an extra special guest star who I just happened to bump into at Roberta's, which is where Heritage is recorded. And that is my good friend, Steve Delinsky. Steve, like, I knew you were researching pizza in New York City. I was so happy to see you here. You are um, a reporter on ABC in Chicago, and you're writing a book on pizza. So uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. if you had to guess, how many pizzas have you eaten so far in uh, this quest to understand pizza. Well, I the book comes out next year, Pizza City USA. I did 180 in Chicagoland, which is city and suburbs. But now I've decided to get the street cred I need to really understand both of these pizza cities. I need to tackle New York, and I'm doing it pretty methodically. And I've identified 50 places in the five boroughs. And um, I had done six previous to this trip that I'm currently on. Each trip's about two and a half days. This current trip, I've got 12 slated. Roberta's was number 10. 
So I've got two more, and then I go to LaGuardia, and I go home. Okay, you said your your secret is core power yoga, something I've never heard of. Core power is a chain. I'm surprised there's not in New York. There's, they're oh, all over I Chicago. Don't, I just don't do yoga. So core power yoga is a chain, <laughs> um, and I, I just it's a block from my house, and yeah. I started going, and I see Rick Bayless there every now and then, and he's a crazy yogi. And there's one class I do called Yoga Sculpt. It's 60 minutes. It's a warm room, not a hot Bikram yoga, but a warm room. They do weights and aerobic and yoga. And okay. that's, my, that's my secret. And that allows you to eat all this pizza one at a time. Now, yeah. I will say, sitting and watching you eat pizza, um, not only are you sort of diligent and organized about your research, you are very diligent about your pizza eating. So can you just um, describe what goes through your mind when you see a piece of pizza or a pie in front of you and how you assess it because of course you need criteria if you're going to compare sure. let's see at the end of the day like 230 pizzas yeah um, well you, you certainly want to, you, you eat with your eyes and so you're looking at what you have before you and I have a couple of things I'm looking for OBR is a key point in my book that stands for optimal bite ratio <laughs> and so point. that kind of applies to anything a great sandwich a great taco you don't want to have a mouthful of dough and so when I see that big wide cornicione that lip around the edge you know, if it's a place like Roberta's with a wood burning oven, I do want to see leopard spotting, and that implies a longer fermented dough and um, probably nicer quality that you know ingredients they're using. But um, I don't necessarily want to eat a mouthful of that dough. So um, I'm looking for the OBR. I'm looking for the, how much cheese is placed. Typically, there's too much cheese. That's a common mistake. Okay, wait. At Roberta's, it's polka dots. So we've got leopard yes. <laughs> leopard Le- edges and polka dots. So is polka dots the way to go? Like, is that a good thing? Yeah, I think so because you want to have sort of little pools of of tomato in between. I just don't want to have cheese end to end because again, it's a it's a very mono. Uh, it's a, it's a similar bite, and so I want to have different. I want to have a little acidic acidic with the tomato. I want to have the richness of the cheese. I want to have that chewy, puffy, salted, seasoned dough. A lot of times, doughs are not salted or seasoned enough. Um, and, and I just yeah, it's got to be pleasurable. And I, like I went to Lucali's the other night in Brooklyn, and I had three pieces. And people were like, you know, thank God you finally went to Lucali because that is a great example of a Brooklyn pie. Um, I know Defar is on the list, uh, Totono's on the list, uh, Ellen B. Spumoni Garden. So I've got three more trips planned, and each trip's going to be about 12 or 13 places. But the book comes out next September. So I will have tackled all of, pretty much all of New York by the summer. Okay. Uh, pie versus slice? Um, as a preference or yes. just, well, uh, I mean, I like a slice because. I don't have to commit to a whole pie. The problem with this quest, as you just saw earlier when I ate the, a slice, I have a slice. I don't eat the whole pie. Right. So I need to bring people with me. Otherwise, it's kind of wasteful. Um, but I do like to see what a pizzaolo can do in an entire pie. I like to look at the whole picture. I always feel like slices in New York, you know, they've been sitting out. There's some kind of a stabilizer in the dough. It's been sitting out all day. They throw it into their baker's pride for five minutes and heat it up. You know, in Chicago, we like fresh. We don't necessarily like something that's been reheated. So I don't know. But here, it's, it's the, the culture. Uh, but I had, had I did have a good slice at New Park Pizza in Howard Beach yesterday. I took the A train out to JFK and walked there. Great, well done slice with the fruit uh, fruit punch. Um, I, I can appreciate a good slice, but I think at the end of the day, I prefer a pie. I want to see what the artisan does with an entire pie. Okay, deep dish. Deconstruct. Chicago's uh, known for deep dish. You're like, no, no, no. That is Times right. Square. So this is in the news now. De Blasio's press secretary just came out and said uh, Pequot's is the best pie. So deep dish is created. It was created in Chicago. It's a Chicago thing. Been there since 1943. Not everybody in Chicago eats deep dish. And I, my analogy is deep dish is to Chicago what Times Square is to New York City. It is, it is a must visit for tourists. Locals could really care less about it. Um, when you go to Chicago as a visitor, you tend to 
to stay in a maybe a six block radius of the downtown hotels. And lo and behold, Gino's, Giordano's, Uno's, uh, Malnati's, they're all there. Yet if you live in Chicago, you'd have a hard time finding a deep dish place. Most places, as I went to these 180 places, I'd call ahead of time and I'd say, hey, what are you guys known for? What do you sell the most of? And nine times out of 10, it's thin crust. And when I say thin crust Chicago style, that's the party cut. That's the tavern style, thin and crispy, square cut pizza. Kind of like the St. Louis version they do at Speedy Romeo in Brooklyn is a square cut pizza as well. But in Chicago, it's thin and crispy underneath. That's a Chicago style pie. So the the project, the, the goal of this book is to convince people on the East Coast that when you say Chicago style, you mean thin and crispy, square cut, not deep dish. Okay. Even though deep dishes are the most famous export. All right. Now, here's the thing. I always am outside those six square blocks and I'll go anywhere for great food. So I land in Chicago and I'm going to go to the best pizza place that you recommend because you know what is that place? Where am I going and where's all of my listeners going? Okay, well again, just really briefly, Chicago has 10 styles of pizza, which is why it's a superior pizza city. But I would say if you wanted to have Roman style, like Bonchi from Rome, the only place he has outside of Rome is drum roll, Chicago. Um, I'd go to Bonchi for a Roman slice. I'd go to La Briola for a deep dish, uh, because you have to have a deep dish, of course. But La Briola, right off of Michigan Avenue, near the Tribune Tower, Rich La Briola does a great job. It's, you order the Russo sausage is what you want there. Uh, for a thin, I you know for the tavern style, Barnaby's is too far in the suburbs if you're visiting. Pat's is pretty good. Pat's is in Lincoln Park-ish Lakeview. That's not so far away. You can get a great Chicago-style thin at Pat's. Um, and um, I would say for a slice, you got to go up to Jimmy's or or Dante. Dante's in Logan Square. And uh, maybe if you wanted to have a stuffed, you could go to Superosa. And if you wanted to have a Detroit style, you could do Revival Food Hall uh, down, downtown in the Loop. There's a place called Union Squared. And if you wanted a Sicilian, you could go over to D'Amato's uh, in the West Loop, or sort of West Town. Wow. Okay. I feel uh, prepared and overprepared. But um, <laughs> thank you for stopping by, Steve. Yeah, Good luck you. with your next two stops and hope to see you next time yeah. in New York. I'm Great. so thrilled to have had this um, you know, moment to hear <laughs> go deep on your pizza knowledge. Great to see you, Dana. Thanks for having me on. And now we're going to switch to something just a little healthier. Um, we're going to be talking about salmon. We're going to be talking about fishing in Alaska with Emily Nicholson. Welcome, Emily. Hello, Dana. Thanks okay. For having me. So, what do you think? You have pizza opinions too, I'm sure, because um, part of the year you live in Brooklyn. Yeah, I think Brooklyn's the best pizza in the world. You do. Yeah. And your choice in Brooklyn would be what? Um, my local choice is probably Best Pie, Best Pizza, which is fantastic in Williamsburg, because that's sort of our neighborhood. So, that's where I mostly go in Brooklyn. But Lucali's is fantastic. All those ones he listed in Brooklyn are fantastic. <laughs> you think he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, so we first met because I bought a share in your CFS, which I always want to call a CSA because it's kind of like a CSA, except in the water with fish. Yes. Yes. And I, you know, I went to meet you at a, an address in, on the Upper West Side, so it was very convenient for me, but it was like in a nursing home, yes. and there's linoleum, and there were, you know, um, bad tables, and, uh, but then there you were with um, a chiller of salmon sides, and ready to talk to your customers, because you and your husband and your husband's family have been fishing in Bristol Bay, Alaska, well, your husband's family has, since before time recorded yeah. their existence. Yes. So I would love to hear uh, first about um, your husband's family and the fishing 
in Alaska that mm-hmm. is the thing that brought us together. Yeah. Um, so my husband's family, as like you said, has been fishing in Bristol Bay, Alaska forever. He's actually um, part Native Alaskan, so that would be the forever part. So nobody really <laughs> knows how long they've been there. Um, and then since the fishery went commercial in, I believe, the 40s, I might be getting that wrong, but I think it's the 40s, um, his family has fished there. His grandfather started had permits and boats, and then his mother grew up fishing, and then she brought her husband and her three sons into fishing, and uh, and we are still there in Graveyard Point, Alaska, and uh, and yeah, I went, he he and his whole family are um, just in love with it. They love it, and they're so committed to it, and it's their home and their sort of their happy place. <laughs> and everybody goes to Alaska for um, June, July, so it's not. They don't live in La- or some of them some do. Live some live there. Time. A lot live in um, Oregon, Portland, Oregon. Our business partners and our dear cousins live in Oregon, and there's a lot of fishermen from Oregon, Seattle. Um, there's actually a lot from Montana, oddly, and um, and then um, we're some of the very few <laughs> come all the way back east, east to Coast. New York. So, um, tell me about the first time you went fishing with. He wasn't. Yeah. He was your husband when yes, you went. The first which I thought was I shocking. I was like, you married a fisherman and you didn't go fishing first. Like to me, that is a, a piece of lunacy. Like what happens if you went on the water and you got seasick? Like what happens if you went and I was smelled a lot? That. I was really worried about the seasickness. I wasn't really sure. I've been on boats, but I had no idea how I would stand up over weeks and fishing around the clock and rough water and all of that. And it's not a boat um, a fishing vessel that most of us imagine. It's actually sort of like a twenty foot open rowboat it's an aluminum skiff so there's not even a seat on it or a cabin or anything like that you just it's an open boat you actually are like walking through the fish and there's just one little motor on the back so there's nothing it's not a it's not like a cruise vessel or a big (laughs) vessel or anything else it's just this little dinky aluminum thing and uh so yeah so I was really worried about being seasick but um we don't usually bring girlfriends and boyfriends fishing because it's sort of a family affair so most uh i don't you have to you have to actually marry in before you get or you can be a crew member for somebody else but you just it's it's uh it's a really tight-knit community and so it's been a little bit it's not it's not like against the law or anything like that but it's a little (laughs) frowned upon in our camp to bring boyfriends and girlfriends and instead we usually bring husbands and wives which you're right could go south but a lot of husbands and wives decide not to go they decide that fishing is not their thing you know, you didn't like even have a testing there. ground though. Like you didn't even go in the rowboat. <laughs> yes. in, you know, yes, that's true. In New yeah. York City to see yes. like how this might work out. I for don't you. know if I want to be on a rowboat in New York City, <laughs> but much better in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. So um, when you first got there, right? Just tell me, like, what was that like? Was it the first time meeting all those cousins or most of them? Yeah, it was the first time. Um, aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents I actually met for the first time. Um, Lots of them, because most or a good portion of the family is based in Alaska, so I had never been to Alaska yet, so that was uh, interesting. First but impressions. First, yeah, first impression of Alaska was the thing that struck me the most growing up here in the beautiful green bosom of the East Coast, <laughs> you know, as like a Yankee, was uh, that there are, you can just look out at almost any given moment and pretty much find a spot that you can you can almost say for sure a human being hasn't walked on. Wow. And that was the first thing that struck me. Like, even driving just right outside of Anchorage, I was like, wow, I bet nobody's ever walked up on the top of that hill. Like, they just haven't. And uh, wow. that was uh, that was sort of 
shocking to me. To and how, how far is it to get to the camp? Oh, so we, uh, so we fly into Anchorage, and then we um, get on a much smaller plane and fly out to a little town called King Salmon, Alaska. And then from King Salmon, you jump in a truck or a cab or a hitchhike into town, which is about 30 miles down just a single lane road. And hitchhiking, and keeps, hitchhiking still goes on. It's yeah, very regularly. Yeah, hitchhiking is very regular there. And you, uh, so you drive down this little road and um, about thirty miles pretty quickly, and then you get to uh, <laughs> this little town called Knacknack. And from there, you um, grab your boat, load it up with all your supplies, and you boat for about an hour or so, depending on the tide, if you're going with it or against it or the time of day. And you get out to Graveyard Point, which is um, only inhabited during the fishing season. And it's on the tundra, right on the water. And um, it's just a real, uh, how do you say it, like piecemeal place of abandoned buildings and rusty machinery and um, big old boardwalks that were built in the 40s. And um, yeah, it was just, there was a steam-run cannery there back in the 40s. And when they decided to close it, they actually just shut the door and turned off the lights and walked away. So everything was still there. So it's like, it's kind of a crazy place. It's a bit of a ghost town, but then we've re-inhabited all the buildings and um, we squat in most of them and or trade around camps and things. And uh, What does that mean to trade around camps? Like, Well, like Christopher was living... That's your husband? Yeah, my husband Christopher was at, for, for a couple of years when our boys came when they were babies and then for a couple of years they didn't come when they were sort of in the in-between age. And so he had gotten... Um, oh, I should preface this by saying our family had a number of buildings that they had had for generations, and all of those buildings, just sort of beautiful and a fisherman's life, all washed into the ocean oh my goodness. during a big storm. So we lost most of our camp, except for like one or two little houses. So we had to re-settle uh, ourselves, because we fish with about 20 to 30 people, and uh, so we have a main cookhouse, we have a bunkhouse, and we have all these little things. So Christopher, my husband, had taken over the second floor of what used to be the mess hall in the old cannery buildings and was squatting there just you know nobody cares because nobody lives there and um and when a friend of his bought a new fishing site and his friends he the people he had been fishing with lived downstairs from Christopher Christopher traded him the squatting rights to the second floor for us to have a little house. So now we have a little house. That's pretty hilarious. <laughs> I like that you can. I didn't know that one could trade squat rights because yeah. that seems like mm, I don't know. <laughs> well, they're there. You know, people will say like, "That's Christopher's. You can't live there." You know, that's where Christopher lives in the summer. So, uh, so he traded those rights, and now we have this little sort of hilarious three-bedroom house that um, has like sheets of paint peeling off of it and is sinking into the tundra. And there's no electricity or running water and uh, plastic over the windows and everything. But it's, uh, but it's all ours. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when you got there and you saw this, you're like, oh, my gosh, it looks like, you know, an abandoned hobo camp. Yes. Um, and you are an East Coast girl. Were you like, uh, um, maybe no. not next year? Or did it seem no, romantic? No, I, uh, and- I actually loved it pretty much right off. I mean, it was weird and different, but uh, but it's pretty beautiful. And it's something you don't get much up here yes. so that's uh so that's nice and uh and yeah I liked it a lot I mean I've lived in a lot of warehouses and um, okay tell me more <laughs> well you know like in Cal like uh just like Bushwick and uh I lived in Oakland California in warehouses I lived in Bed-Stuy Brooklyn in warehouses and I uh what attracts you to living in warehouses I'm not cheap, cheap rent yeah <laughs> <laughs> cheap <laughs> rent and lots of ways um but so I think maybe I didn't mind it as much like my old 
um, houses in Oakland, California were all like along the railroad tracks and literally tumbleweed would go by. <laughs> <laughs> so you were getting ready. And then, yeah. um, and then your first time out on the boat, I mean, you've described how you could get on the water when you're allowed to fish, mm-hmm. um, which is after a certain number of salmon have gone to yes. spawn, and yeah. then the ones that remain you can catch. You can catch, yeah. Um, but they're everywhere. Like, what was yeah, that like? Yeah, they are everywhere. Yeah, that was, I mean, again, a totally separate experience from sort of what you're used to hearing and seeing and our understanding of what fishing is like. Everything we hear is that the fish are gone, the fish are gone, the stocks are declining, there's too many dams, there's overfishing. And then you get to Alaska, which, because the state did this when it was founded and they managed their fishery so beautifully, um, the fish are not gone. They are abundant. And every which way you look, you can literally see them jumping out of the water. You can see them swimming past your nets. You can actually be angry at them for getting past you because you can <laughs> see them. Um, they are everywhere. I mean, nets are, your net gets sunk on a busy day. Just It gets so full, it literally sinks under the water and you have to like manhandle it in. Um, yeah, the fish are everywhere. It is so bountiful. It's ridiculous. If you got up on a bridge upstream, the water just is red with salmon passing underneath you. And so. the, the um, Alaska salmon is red. It's called sockeye salmon. Mm-hmm. But there's five kinds of Alaska salmon. and there's. Yeah. Um, but you fish just for one? Yes. And is that yes. because the, um, the lake or the tributary or wherever you fish, that's the only um, one that's there? No, actually. There's other ones. There's five kinds of Pacific salmon, all different, all have their own, you know, um, good and bad points. But... Um, but ours is sockeye salmon. I guess none of them have their bad points. I shouldn't say that. They're all <laughs> delicious and healthy and bountiful. But the, Some um, might have less omega There you threes. go. They might have less omega than the others. So we fish for sockeye, which is um, a medium-sized. It's not the huge kings that you see. Uh, it's very firm flesh. It's bright red in color. That's what it's known for. It is just crazy red. Like, you can't believe it when you open them up. And um, they're very high in omegas. They're very high in antioxidants. And um, the reason we only fish for those is, is that's what our families always fish for. But also in Alaska, part of their management is you only get to fish for one. Those are separate permits for each one. So, And if we wanted to fish for others, we would have to stay in Alaska for much longer because magically... The salmon actually kind of cue themselves up. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, I it's did kind not know of that. crazy. There's like, there's like a sack. It's like a theater. Run, yeah, and then like other ones are waiting out in the water, and then they come in, and then it's the king run, then it's the chum run, then it's the then they go down the line, and uh, they they don't happen simultaneously. You'll catch a few kings, or you'll catch a few pinks at the end of the season, but it's. But yeah, they are queuing up in the ocean somewhere for and their with, time, their with turn. All of those fish, and I mean, this is a very naive question, but what are they all eating? Like, I just imagine, you know, they're all swimming past, but they're all starving. Yeah. Or, and and there's so many of them. Like, what is in that water? It's krill. Well, that's, and, so they're eating krill, and the, or ours are. I can't really speak to the other salmon. I'm not sure what their diet consists of, but I know sockeye, what makes them so red is the krill they eat. Um, and the, chem- the thing that makes the krill shells, like lobster shells red, is the same thing that makes our salmon red. Um, but amazingly, when they decide to come back to spawn, they stop eating. So they're not eating anymore. They might eat something if they pass it. I, I think I've heard that they'll sort of eat opportunistically, like if something arrives, they'll eat it. But they're not eating anymore. And that's why they turn red when they get upstream. When we catch them, they're still beautiful and silver and fatty because they've just started the trip. But by the time they get upstream, they turn red, not because of their skins change color, but because their fat is gone, and you can see the red flesh inside of them. 
I know, creepy, gross. Sometimes I mean, you catch it. Kind of amazing. Like, yeah, I did amazing. a shudder here. That's what she's responding yeah. to. I'm like, yeah. wow, that's it's amazing. kind of gross, but amazing. And <gasps> they they have to time the journey just right to be able to fight upstream and to for their reserves to last that long. And they do that. Another magical thing about salmon. So um, you fish with nets as mm-hmm. opposed to anything else, and yeah. you get very little bycatch, which I just was astonishing to me, like 0.06%, yeah. which even, is... Yeah, even less. It's, it's non-existent, it's our bycatch. Yeah. Really uh, fantastic. So it's, it's like flopping around your toes and stuff in the, in the um, crappy little boats, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. And then you bring it to shore, and then what happens to the fish? Oh, so, okay, so we catch them, we pull them out of the water, we fish with nets, like you're saying, all by hand. You throw out the nets, you drag in the nets. We actually mend our nets, you know, the whole thing. It all has to be done by hand because there's just no other good way to do that. Um, And so we fill up our boats, and as they're coming in, we're bleeding and chilling them. And then, um, which is kind of gross, but it makes for really good salmon. Um, You're pausing for the listener. You're like, you guys are going to think that's gross, but it's not bad. It sounds mean, but it's actually really good, and it gets you great fish. Um, And then we bring them to shore, and we actually have a sweet, um, wonderful girl um, who uh, custom sort of cuts our fish for us, and she processes all our fish for us. I did it one year. It's a really serious job, and I'm never... We're never doing that again. Um, <laughs> um, serious because, like, volume, speed, just, Yeah, and it's, a, it's another skill. You know, fishing is one skill, and filleting the fish is another skill. What is the fishing skill? Because, like, I'm looking at the pictures, and there's nets, and then the fish mm-hmm. go in the nets, and then, like, it's almost unavoilable to catch them, and then you haul them up. Is, yes. the, is the skill in the hauling? The hauling, and also, actually, there's a thing that most people wouldn't know or think about, but uh, the fish actually get caught by their gills in the net. That's how they... That's when we fish with a particular size net to fit their heads in it. And uh, every fish that comes in, you actually have to pick out of the net. So you're not just wow. like dumping the net into your boat. You actually pull it out and every single fish is in its own little hole. And you have to um, sort of gently retrieve that fish from that net. And so being able to do that fast is a big skill. <laughs> it's a really yeah. big skill. And people have different techniques. But that's a huge skill. Getting them out fast without marking them up or bruising them yeah. or... You know, doing all that. So uh, that's Did you have a, to get over the ick factor? Like icks, wet, yeah, slimy. Yeah, ick factors. The ick factor's there, but you know what? You work so fast and so hard, uh-huh. you get over it. And luckily, uh, I don't know about other fishermen, but salmon don't smell bad. They don't. So that's oh. really nice. So I'm very grateful for that because that would, uh, that might, that might have been hard. <laughs> now, um, I, I noticed that there are some women fishermen mm-hmm. and there are women fishers mm-hmm. and men. It seems like it's not something that women are necessarily... There aren't a lot of you. No, but there are more than you would think, especially in Alaska, because I think so much of it is uh, family businesses. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a boy or girl, you just get out there and you work. And uh, and they all work real hard. And most of the guys would tell you that, like, all the best fishermen are women. That's what Christopher always says. He's like, all the best fishermen are actually women. Is that because and of the dexterity with getting the heads out of the nets? Probably. It has a lot to a do with fish picking. But, but fish picking. a lot of my cousins and Christopher himself and all of them, their fish picking is amazing. So <laughs> I don't know. So, okay, so you get the fish out, the fish get prepared, and then... Like, is that at 2 in the afternoon or like? Oh, uh, we fish around the clock. You so fish? that's happening around the clock. We fish. We always joke that every day in Alaska is really two days because we fish with the tides. So there's two tides a day. So you go out. Everybody has their own schedule or where, they, where they're fishing has its own productive time during the tide. But 
let's just say you fish, uh, like we fish often at the top of the tide. So it's like you, you head out right before the high water mark, and then you fish the tide down while the water goes out. And then uh, you go in, you eat a snack, you drink some tea, you take a quick nap, and then you get back up. And you go out before the high water mark, and you do the same thing again. I'm sorry. Are you awake 24 hours except for that nap? Yeah. So you're just fishing around the clock, and the sun's up all the time, and you're just oh, you're just right. fishing and fishing and fishing and uh, and sleeping and when you get to sleep and eat when you get to eat. And what happens at base camp? Because you have a couple of ki- kids who come with yeah. you, and so that gets like, tricky. Like, is there a whole life at camp that just goes on, and the fires yeah. are burning, and there's a cook cooking, and what's yeah. that like? Uh, so we have an amazing cook. Um, He's unbelievable. I can't I, I can't sing enough praises for him. His name's Johnny Burroughs, and he lives in Alaska year-round and actually um, does... He hunts bears. Like He takes people on trips to for bear hunting the rest of the year. But then he comes out and cooks for us like a champion, and um, he is cooking around the clock, that guy, just making heaps of food and making sure he'll get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to make sure there's hot food when, when we come in at 4, and he'll get up... And then he'll take a nap, and he'll do the same. So he, uh, we try to keep the schedule close to normal, but we can't. And uh, so the kids, you know, they just fall in where they can. And when they're asleep, they miss that meal, and they'll come out and eat some cereal or some ramen and go back to bed too. Or, but, yeah, you just sort of make do. You know, the kids have their own schedule, and the fishermen have their own. The hardest part is the kids not waking up the fishermen. <laughs> That's the worst. Oh, I see. <laughs> That's the worst part, trying to keep them quiet when uh, people are sleeping. You're like, can't run around screaming right now. Everybody's asleep. But, oh, my gosh, and on their own schedule. Yeah. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about... Um, Emily balancing, you know, life on the water and life in Brooklyn and what really a CFS is and, um, and those shares. So stay with us. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and today I have as my guest, Emily Nicholson from Iliamna. 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 Oh, I got my M's and N's backwards. It's an impossible name. (laughs) Um, A fish company. And she's a a fisherman in Alaska, but lives um, really 10 months a year in Brooklyn. So... 
you're kind of bifurcated. And we met, as I said at the beginning of the show, because I bought a, a share um, in the CFS community supported fishery. And I loved it. I loved it. Um, you know, it became having people over and serving them a side of salmon with, um, you know, I put mustard and then um, seasoned uh, panko chips on them or and then rest in the oven. Delicious. Super, you know, like briefly. And every single time people are like, oh my God, you're amazing. I'm like, no, 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 no. I am not amazing. The fish there are amazing, is, but the salmon's uh, delicious. <laughs> but the salmon's the salmon's fantastic. So the old model or the ongoing model of fishing is usually you sell it to a distributor, the distributor um, obviously sells it on. And the price for the catch is quite low. Mm-hmm. And your family figured out a different way to do it. So I'd love to hear about like how that came about and then you yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, many years ago, before I actually married my husband, but actually right when we started dating, the um, the wholesale price for salmon or the price the fishermen were getting off of the boat just plummeted. And most people blame that on um, farmed fishing and also uh, sort of American markets not buying enough of their own salmon. So, uh, so it would get sent over to China, Japan, and since they were controlling the market, since uh, we weren't marketing ourselves or setting our own prices it was just getting sold for nothing really um so the price went from way over a dollar a pound like almost two dollars a pound of salmon off of their boat down to like 30 cents a pound and even lower at some point so it was crazy so they're they're paying these fishermen 30 cents a pound for this beautiful stuff and they can't even afford their plane tickets or their food or their gas and all the stuff that you need to fish um so and since fishing, you know, a lot of people just left and said, well, forget it. But um, since fishing just meant a lot to them, we were like, well, how can we do this? And the way to do it was to take over that distribution the best we could. And it took us years. At first, we started um, selling to restaurants and chefs, which was great. And here in Brooklyn, Diner was our very first customer, and they were awesome and just gave us a shot and um and applewood in brooklyn was also one of our very first customers and uh they were all just great and they were friends uh we became good friends with all of them and uh, they supported us like champions but then we sort of stumbled on the csf model as an idea and our cousin in portland actually piloted it first did it and it was a good success and then we did it out here and i think we started with like i want to say like you know, 30 people, or it was really small. And um, and the good people at the Brooklyn Kitchen were our very first hosts, and we just did it. We were like, well, let's try this out. Right, the host being the place where you we turn up distribute. With, yeah. <laughs> with your, yes. like, chiller box. Exactly, yeah, our host, because because uh, it's New York, and, of course, we don't have space anywhere. <laughs> we don't have a garage to do this out of or anything like that. So, uh, so the Brooklyn Kitchen hosted us, and we had, like, 25 people or 30 people, I think, and did it right there in their front entryway with one freezer and just some salmon and did it in an afternoon. And it was, uh, it was so great, and it was people just loved it and immediately were asking for more, and so we just kept doing it. And so you've created essentially a mailing list. All of your sales at this point are, there's no advertising. It's word of mouth. I had heard it from Megan Krigbaum, who's mm-hmm. an amazing um, wine and spirits writer, and she was passionate 
And I was like, ooh, I want in on that. Yeah. yeah. And there's also this thing of scarcity. I was like, I wonder if I ask whether there's going to be enough for me. Yeah. And, um, and then well, the we sell out usually, so that's good. We, I mean, we sell out in uh, kind of naturally, like we don't sell our entire catch as a CSF. We still wholesale off a bunch to um, third-party processors, but we are in the great position where we kind of get to cherry pick our catch and sell it to our customers. And because we like to do that, um, we do set a pretty firm limit on how much we'll do, you know, because we want to make sure that they can get filleted beautifully, that they can get packed beautifully, that they can, that our handling practices are really important to us. So we want to make sure we can do that. And to do that, we don't oversell. We make sure it's always has a cap. And we do sell out, but we're very grateful for that. And it is, it's all word of mouth. We just have great customers who just love this stuff. And so are there any great customer stories? You know, when I was in line to, you know, mm-hmm. get my fish out of the freezer, I was struck up a conversation with a, a woman who was there who had been a food writer for, you know, quite some time, quite some time ago. But mm-hmm. it just seemed like the people who find you are a unique breed. Yes, they are very passionate about their food, which is great. I mean, somebody who's willing to pay up front for their salmon or at least half, you know, you pay half of it up front and then you come and pick it up. But you order in May... You wait all summer for your fish to come back. Then you come and collect it, and you come to the Upper West Side or Williamsburg <laughs> or Red Hook, Brooklyn, or all these different places, and you, you know, you make this trip. It's you know people who care. They really want this food. Um, we have lots of great like uh, people from Seattle who can't believe what animals we are out east and how we don't have good salmon. <laughs> They're always so excited to find us. That's one really good one. But then. Um, Yes. I'm trying to think of great stories. We just have... Well, the, the Blue Hill story, which is actually a, a restaurant oh, story, is yeah. a beautiful story. So, it is. Um, it is. You, yeah, I can tell you about that. So we have... Uh, Blue Hill is also one of our very longest running customers. Blue Hill Stone Barns up in Westchester, which I'm sure most of your listeners know about. And what a beautiful and amazing uh, restaurant they run up there. Um, so... Each year we fish for them. We tell them in, like, May, well, we're heading up. We're going to be ready soon. And they tell us what they kind of want, and we go and fish and send them fish every single week. And one year we just had no fish. There was We weren't allowed to fish for a number of reasons. It just wasn't a great season. And like I said before, we're not allowed to fish unless there's enough fish in the water to spawn. So we didn't have any fish this year. And it was a terrible season, and uh, I had... Uh, disappointed them at least twice already, saying like, oh, I'll get fish out on Monday. And then sure enough, there was no fish and I couldn't send them fish. So I offered to um, link them up with another fisherman in a neighboring district that that they were getting a lot of fish. So I said, you know, I will find you another fisherman and have them ship you a box right away. Um, like it's no problem at all. And they immediately wrote back, like they didn't even hesitate. They wrote back immediately and just said, no, you know what, we don't want that. You're our fisherman, and we don't want anybody else's fish. If you don't have fish, we don't have fish, and that's it. And they weren't going to serve anybody else's salmon. And we had another restaurant that serves our salmon, Milo's, in New York City, um, and also in Vegas and Miami, they all serve our salmon, and they um, they said the same. But Blue Hill just killed me. They were amazing. So it really beautiful. So gracious and beautiful. I mean, I think this, it just says so much about the quality of the relationship and the, the loyalty and the depth in this food industry. Are there other sort of big life lessons that you feel like you've learned in engaging in this, um, in this business, you know, either from the fish and the wild or coming back mm-hmm. and having this balance that I don't know a lot of people who have that kind of balance or imbalance in their life? Um, 
yeah, I'd hope it's a balance, <laughs> not an imbalance. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but it's, um, I don't know. I mean, mostly I think the rhythms, one thing that I think about a lot is that the rhythm of our life is dictated, our home life, our work life is dictated by a sort of harvest schedule. And I've realized that seems crazy the way our world works now that, you know, everything happens every month and you have monthly bills and monthly things and weekly things. But, uh, but it makes me uh, very conscious of sort of how I think maybe humans were meant to run, like on a harvest schedule. Like this is how most people lived for thousands of years and now we don't, but that it's uh, sort of the rhythm of like working hard in the summer and the fall and then taking off the winter and spring being a little easier is, uh, is kind of really a good natural I think rhythm. It of feels life. like a natural rhythm. It does, you. and it just make it makes me. I feel crazy and busy, like we all do in this modern world. But it makes me think about, oh yeah, this is how, this is just how people like. This is how history was. This is how we sustain ourselves. This is how we always sustained ourselves. And then we took sort of like a long rest. So maybe that's one lesson. And you have two kids who, because of the school system and the way that the schools work, mm-hmm. um, need to be homeschooled. Mm-hmm. And how has that shaped your life? Um, homeschooling has been, uh, it's like a challenge, but it's also sort of amazing what it's been able to let us do. One of the things it lets us do is go fishing because they don't have to miss a month of school every year, which uh, doesn't really fly very well in New York. It also means that we get to spend time together even when it's the harvest like even uh my husband's other job actually is a winemaker so he's deep in another harvest season at the moment but uh so it means that like we actually still get to spend time together even though he's working around the clock we can fit things in in different times and places so that works really well and that's been a real like blessing to us all that it that we don't have to be you know out the door at 7 a.m every day and home by six and da 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 um but then also it's just helped us like it's been great just being running around the city. Uh-huh. We have such a great city. It's just so <laughs> great. And being able to uh, to just run all over town on and go to the Met on a Tuesday instead of a Saturday is uh, a, big, is a gift. It's a very big difference. <laughs> it's and a gift. when you when you come back, right, you've you've disconnected mm-hmm. although worked like a crazy person mm-hmm. around the clock when you're in Alaska, and you come back to New York and you're you begin to plug in again. What does that feel like? Um it usually feels pretty tiring at first, but uh, but good. We always love it. We love getting back here, and we love uh, seeing our friends and going out for coffee and doing all the fun stuff that you get to do here in the city and just, like, hanging out at the park and the pool. But uh, but it is, um, it is a challenge, sort of, like, readjusting to the constant interruptions, I guess I should say, just the constant, like, text messages and emails and stuff that has to get done and paying all the bills and doing all the work and getting the groceries even. And like I said before, like having a cook is great. I'm <laughs> <laughs> back to just getting used to making your own meals again and grocery shopping. And But the farmer's market, when we get back, oh my goodness, we spend hundreds of dollars like on our first trip at the farmer's market, just buying up all the fruit and berries and all these green. All those fresh things that you haven't that seen. That we haven't seen. And that's probably the very best part is the New York farmer's market. There's there's like no better place than the New York farmer's market. And if you could sketch out your perfect, I mean, you may feel like you have a perfect life, so you could sketch it exactly as it is right now. But, you know, what does the perfect life to you look like if the perfect rhythm of life is in a harvest cycle? 
Um, gosh, I don't know. I wish I uh, wish I had a better answer. I can think like cheaper plane tickets would be great. <laughs> <laughs> I could really travel more. Um, but a perfect life. Yeah, I think we do have a pretty great life. We've been so uh, so lucky. I don't know. All right, so let's talk. Let's talk fish, right? Because okay. you do not get sick of salmon, which I find extraordinary. Because I would be so maxed out. I mean, I I think I, my, the rhythm that I live in is a New York rhythm. I, like I'm born here. I I only left for college, and so the constant change and the con like I can yes. have something new every single day. And if I don't yeah. have something new every Three single day, a day, I feel a little cheated. Yeah. Um, but you were saying like, okay, there's a million things you can do with salmon. So, can you give me your top we're going to end the show with the top five things you love to do with salmon oh yeah that's a good question so probably my uh probably my favorite preparation is sashimi always that's like my favorite and uh and your fish when um it's packed and it's handled so beautifully you can your it's own all fish. sushi great so you can eat it raw as much as you like and it's delicious raw um and yeah so sashimi is probably my favorite i don't even care about rolling it in rolls usually we just you just eat it. <laughs> just like make like a bear and eat it. And um, it, yeah, I love sashimi. That's probably my favorite. And then after that, it's probably broiled, which I imagine if I had a backyard and a grill, maybe mm-hmm. it would be grilled. Uh-huh. But I love it broiled, uh, and like the crispy skin, big yeah. puckery, like charred skin. I love. Yeah. Um, I also like it slow roasted. It's uh-huh. delicious and easy because you don't have to be so time sensitive. So is sashimi that way. It's easy because you don't. I always worry about overcooking it. Uh-huh. So things like slow roasting and sashimi, and uh, I don't do it, but I have a lot of customers who sous vide, and oh. I still haven't done that, but I hear it's amazing. And what do you put on it? Like, do you keep your preparations very simple, like it's salt, pepper, olive oil, or sometimes, sometimes we even do like uh, sometimes we Christopher does this. I've never done it, but he does it a lot for us. Um, rolls it in like curry and then panko breadcrumbs mm-hmm. and then deep fries it mm. like makes like a salmon fish and chips which is so good oh yeah yeah it's that so good. good and that's actually my little son doesn't like salmon that's the only way he likes it <gasps> oh my god <laughs> he likes it curried and deep fried and that's because he says it doesn't taste like salmon <laughs> right you've erased but, all the salmon exactly. flavor but i still taste the salmon and it's delicious that way and um and what, what are your favorite go with like oh what, miso Miso. Miso, maple syrup, mustard, like you said, I love. Um, anything sesame mm. flavored, I love. But those are all my favorites. But miso for sure. I mean, you can just take out a filet and like rub it down with miso paste and cook it in that. Yeah. And it's done. It's done. And that is the best thing about a side of salmon, I got to say. It's like one thing and done. Um, yeah. And then um, potatoes, kale. Just potatoes, for sure. Potatoes. I love potatoes and salmon. And I actually, I like to make salmon cakes a lot with potatoes in them. I mm. love that. And, um, yeah, potatoes, green salad. I usually don't do kale because, like you said, I like to keep it really simple. When I'm having salmon, I keep everything real simple. So it's, like, arugula and, like, maybe just, yeah, some potatoes, like roasted potatoes and a side of salmon. Or rice. And, just and you're done. It's greens. simple. Like, I try to keep it really easy. It's kind of, it, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound fancy, but it is a, I try to think of it as like our ultimate fast food. Because it is. It's like you can have it in 10 minutes. That's, that's right. Because of the size of the salmon and yeah. even s- slow roasting it. And probably if you do it more than that, you're overcooking it and you're, yeah. you're you hurting just, the quality of the fish. But I mean, you can make like a gorgeous meal 
in a couple of minutes that's like so good for you. It's not pizza, even though pizza's delicious, <laughs> but it's like it's so good for you. It's healthy, it's delicious, it covers all your bases and all you need is like a green salad, some salmon. And some potatoes or rice or something. I feel like we came full circle because we managed to say in one sentence, pizza and salmon. Exactly. So. There you go. Get back to it. Back to so it. Um, with that, we'll conclude the show. But I have to believe that anyone listening to this is going to want to know how to reach you. Oh, yeah. How to follow you and how to um, get on that mailing list for Well, next our year's website salmon. is super easy. It's redsalmon.com, just the color red and salmon. And uh, actually next week starts our sign-ups here in New York and also in Portland for our cold-smoked holiday share. So that's like the same great salmon, but cold-smoked in a lock style. And um, so, yeah, so anybody who wants it, get on there, give us your email, and we'll let you know when we have salmon. That's great. And this is your host, Dana Cowan. You can find me at FW Scout. Um, on Instagram and Twitter and let me know if there's anything you want to hear from me, a guest you want to have um, me interview on the air and I look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you, Dana. Have a great week. Thanks for joining me. Thank Emily. you. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.